0: giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hey everybody, uh, this is Ben Orenstein and I'm here with Joe Ferris and we are broadcasting to you from the ThoughtBot office in Boston. How's it going, Joe? Pretty good. How are you, Ben? I'm doing uh, pretty well. So Joe, what do you do here at ThoughtBot? I am the CTO. So is that sort of a marketing type position? Exactly. Yeah, okay. a lot of marketing. Yeah. You don't write any code or anything? Uh, you know, maybe every once in a while. So we put a post up on the Giant Robots blog uh, asking for people to submit questions. And uh, let's tackle a couple of them now. So the first was a question from a fairly long-time Rails developer uh, who is attempting to prevent a backslide to subversion. So he's been using Git for a long time. He's a big fan of it. Uh, but apparently he recently uh, moved onto a team where the manager doesn't think Git is a good idea. Uh, he thinks the branching and merging uh, provides too much overhead. So he's asking, he says he's argued for, you know, he's argued for Git. Um, he's trying to make the case, but he's having trouble. And so he actually asked what we would say to the, fu- to the, the specific argument that branching and merging is unnecessary. Do mm-hmm. you have any uh, pushback on that? Yeah.
1: I mean, first of all, I would say that if this is the kind of problem you have to deal with at work, that you should apply for a job here
0: yeah totally. um, we're all
1: pretty sold on git and we we definitely see the value in branching and merging yeah um, but to answer the question yeah so git is awesome the fact that it has such cheap branches made me realize how much that how, how useful branches actually are mm-hmm. so uh, just to give a little bit of background I first started using um, I think the first version control I ever used was CVS. Mm -hmm. which was the precursor to SVN. And it was great having version control versus no version control. Absolutely. But you had to think very carefully about everything you did in SVN because once you committed something, it was on the server. There was no, like, oh, let me just look at what I just did to make sure it was fine. And there was no pushing to staging from another branch. It was in everybody's lap as soon as you were done with it. Mm -hmm. And branching in subversion was very expensive. It involved making an actual physical copy of the entire directory and then putting it in a subdirectory right um in git that's not the case so you can do neat things like for example a thought bot we all work in a branch all the time before it goes back into master and before it becomes everybody else's problem another developer reviews the code and we have found that those code reviews catch so many small things before they go to other developers and before they go to production totally before they get in front of a client's eyes mm-hmm. um also, one of the awesome things about Git is that it has this thing called rebasing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so a frequent problem that I would find in subversion is that I would start to do something, start to add some new feature, mm-hmm. and then maybe a couple commits in, even, I would realize this class I'm working with is actually horrible. And it would be much easier to do what I'm doing right now if it didn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've already started adding new behavior, it can be really difficult to modify a class. Yep, One of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given is never refactor and add new behavior at the same time
0: Mm -hmm. that's probably
1: the most confusing thing you can do to yourself right Um, but what git lets you do actually is if you have a branch where you're working on a new feature you can go back to master and then start a new branch based on master Mm -hmm. refactor whatever was getting in your way and then it's like time travel you just rebase what you're working on on top of the refactor Mm -hmm. and then you can work as if the code was clean all along
0: right Uh, And if you don't
1: have any branches, I have no idea how you can get a workflow like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I think that, I think you, you nailed it perfectly. And I I almost want to go back to the, what you, our initial answer, which is I, I've heard a lot of stories. I hear a lot of horror stories about like these terrible development environments where you have like a manager who really doesn't know what's up or coworkers who you really loathe. And I can't help but feel that for developers that are in that you are sort of bringing it on yourself by not leaving. Like you need to vote (laughs) with your feet. So either like you've either you 've decided that it 's okay with you and you 're going to stay and try to fix it, or you need to leave and if you can 't leave, then maybe you might be part of the problem right if you can 't get a different job where things are better, it might actually be you contributing to this this issue but, like I, I have trouble feeling for too badly for these people because you, especially today with uh, the rails world being such a hot job market it 's hard to feel much pity. <laughs>
1: merciless ben
0: yeah so come work here because (laughs) we love git and people are smart and things are good so another question um someone asked do you run automated tests across all popular devices and platforms for client-side code i'm particularly interested in windows with ie8 plus android 2.1 chrome safari firefox if so how do you do it
1: so we, we don't do that. We don't run automated tests across many platforms mm-hmm. um, for a few reasons. One is that we we try to limit the number of platforms we're targeting, especially initially. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, we won't try to make a mobile application for every platform at once okay. because it's just asking for pain. You don't want to spend all the time debugging it on every platform before you've validated the idea. Okay. Um, another thing is that Browsers are not as bad as they used to be hmm. back in the old Internet Explorer and Netscape days. Like there are still problems between different browsers. It's not necessarily true that something that works on one browser will work on another. Mm-hmm. But it's a much safer bet. The browsers themselves are better and tools like jQuery have abstracted the common problem so that yeah. you know finding an element by its ID is no longer a strange problem to solve. Right. Uh, so what we generally do is I think everybody in the office develops in Chrome at this point. Yep. And we review everything in Chrome. We run most of our automated uh, unit uh, automated non unit tests through Selenium, which uses Firefox. So we mm-hmm. also get some coverage there, and we'll you know glance at it in Firefox. We look at most things in some fairly recent version of Internet Explorer, mm-hmm. and then from there we rely on bug reports. Right. You know, if something specific is broken. We'll fix it, and you know, we'll know not to make that mistake again. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: we don't automatically. Um, run all the code across several platforms. Yeah. I think another good reason not to do that is specifically the things that tend to break for us across browsers are no longer JavaScript problems. Right. It's a styling situation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we've done some things to like look into automated testing for preventing CSS problems. Yeah. But it's a very difficult thing to teach a machine to do. Totally. To basically say like, hey, this page should not look stupid. Right. Like, I can't do that, and I'm a developer. Right. So I don't know how I'm going to teach uh, you know, Selenium to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, So yeah. the kind of issues you're going to see in different platforms are going to be cosmetic, typically, as opposed to broken functionality. Right. So it's not as important to be on top of that all the time with an automated tool.
1: Yeah, well, arguably it's not as important, but also it's not as feasible. You need a person to look at it and right, right, say, this right. is what I intended. Right. Versus, you know, very well-described behavior by a program where you can actually write another program to self-check.
0: Okay. So hopefully those were some useful answers to your questions. Uh, we'd love to hear more from you and answer more questions. So there are a couple ways you can do that. One is you can post on the Ask the Giant Robots post on the blog. You can also email us at info at You can tweet to us at thoughtbot. Or we, you can even call us on our toll-free number, which is eight seven seven nine robots extension 198, and leave us a voicemail, and we will probably not play it on the air and mock you. <laughs> so why don't we talk about polymorphism versus conditionals?
1: thought you'd never ask. Ooh. So anytime you have um, a divergence in the behavior, like it can act one way or it can act another, yep. you could handle that through a straight conditional, which is... Um, very obvious in the surface. Like you can say, if this user is signed in, then go to this location. If they're not, then go to the sign in page. Okay. Uh, so that would be using a conditional. Using polymorphism, um, you take advantage of the fact that you're doing object oriented programming to have different implementations of the same general interface and then dispatch those different interfaces. Okay. So you could say, for example, hey, whoever is signed in. Uh, go wherever you go for this action. And then a guest implementation can go one place and a signed in user can go another
0: place. Okay. So sort of at a high level, rather than conditionals where you're checking branches, you are just sending the same message to different objects. Right. Exactly. Okay. So is, do you consider one better than the other?
1: Well, um, (laughs) kind of a loaded question there, Ben. Uh, Yeah, it is. Uh, There's no clear winner for every situation. Certainly, um, I wrote code that has a decent amount of ifs in there. Mm -hmm. But when it's possible, especially if um, you think something might need to be checked more than once, it's better to offload that onto polymorphism.
0: Okay. So that clears up duplication rather than having the same conditional in a bunch of places?
1: Right. That's definitely one advantage. So, uh, you know, going back to the previous example of Mm -hmm. signed in versus not signed in, one of the advantages of using polymorphism is that that concept is abstracted from whatever is diverging. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the many places where you decide whether or not a user is allowed to, uh, for example, post a blog post, um, you just have to ask whatever user you have. You don't have to care in that particular piece of code why somebody is allowed or not allowed to post a blog post.
0: Okay. So you're saying that the user holds the responsibility for knowing what they're able to do
1: or, you know, any object. Okay. What's important is that the, um, the class where you actually create the blog post is not responsible for figuring out which users are
0: allowed to create blog posts. Right. Okay. So your sort of responsibility is split up then. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do I need to, do I need to use inheritance to make use of this?
1: No, um, no, definitely not. And actually I would recommend in general that you don't use inheritance to do this. Okay. Um, so in the previous example, there's no reason for uh guest to inherit from user or user to inherit from guest or for them to have a common parent class in most situations, because there, there won't be that much common behavior. Mm-hmm. And if there is a lot of common behavior that, um, needs to build on the specifics of those two classes, rather than inheriting i would i would probably create a third class that composes either a guest or a user
0: interesting is that a general
1: strategy that you would tend to follow yeah just in programming in general right but actually in the specific case of using a guest and a user i don't think i've ever had to fall back to either a third class or a parent class
0: okay so just just as a general thing the composition over inheritance is something that i've sort of heard parroted and and read myself in the design patterns book Mm -hmm. uh is that something that you believe in do you find it beneficial as a general policy
1: uh yes definitely okay um you know we're big proponents of object-oriented programming Mm -hmm. at thoughtbot and definitely uh part of that is relying on composition over inheritance Mm -hmm. so um do you have a more specific question?
0: Well, uh, <clears throat> so it's, I'm with you on that, and I've, I've seen some of these benefits. But for instance, if I want to make any models in Rails, I'm inheriting right off the bat from active record base. Mm-hmm. So how do we reconcile that? <laughs> yeah. So um, in Ruby, there are
1: two kinds of straight inheritance, right? There's mm-hmm. actually having a superclass like an Active Record, and there are mix-ins like DataMapper uses. Yeah, and in both cases, it's a very easy way to um, shove a lot of behavior into one class, sure. right? To reuse things. Yep. But it also um, it mixes concerns right off the bat.
0: Mm. Right. So
1: one way to get around that problem and take advantage of the fact that Ruby has all this meta programming, you can do interesting things with ActiveRecord Record mm-hmm. uh, while not modeling all your concerns. Would be to compose those sort of special classes.
0: Right. Okay. I think Opti's, yeah, Opti Grimm has been writing about this. Have mm-hmm. you read Object on Rails? Uh, I read a very early draft of it. OK. That's sort of a, a based around this idea, right? Mm-hmm. He's yeah, because You uh,
1: compose the Active Record models rather than you know using them all over the place, right?
0: Yeah. And I think you're just sort of relegating Active Record to sort of your persistence. Right. Exactly.
1: And in general, I would start with a plain Ruby class whenever possible mm-hmm. and not go to Active Record right off the bat. Because there are a lot of situations
0: where you don't actually need it. Okay, I have a personal question for you then. (laughs) Where do you put your plain Ruby classes? Are you an app models guy or are you a lib guy? I put them in models. Okay.
1: I put things in lib that are either um, sort of generic and not directly related to the application that might one day make it to a a library of their own. Okay. I also put general utility classes in there. Uh, And this is kind of a fuzzy line that a lot of people call me out on Mm -hmm. that are not actually part of the domain like the sort of rule I, I use in my head is if i was describing this site to a person like what's involved in the site mm-hmm. would i ever use the noun for this class when describing it to them mm-hmm. so for example like sign up that's a noun you might use like yep. form but something like uh username casher mm-hmm. probably that wouldn't come into your
0: conversation right so uh that i'll, I'll put in lib that would live in lib okay but that makes sense because I was going to have to call you a liar because last week <laughs> uh, I saw you made a merchant collection cache uh, that you threw in lib in an app we were working on. But so that, that makes sense. Like, that, it sounds like you're telling the truth so that when you do something that's sort of a general utility kind of class, uh, it goes in lib. And otherwise, it's, if it's sort of a domain-ish model, Right. Well and model. One of the
1: benefits of having a very fuzzy rule like that is that there's no way to actually
0: call me out on <laughs> 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 That's true. That's the, the benefits of generalities. Um, so we, we, we said we we're gonna talk about null object a little bit. Mm-hmm. So how does null object fit into this uh, polymorphism versus conditional stuff
1: So uh, null or nil in Ruby is one of the places I see conditionals the most okay um, like checking for nils or right so the concept of nothingness is something you have to deal with in programming. you can't have the con- you can't avoid the concept of absence so like for example you know the absence of a user right yep. you're a guest. But it's better whenever possible to try and treat that as not like a special case in the code that's using the user. It's Mm -hmm. better to use it, to treat it as an alternative. Okay. Like an actual thing. Right. So like uh, one worry I've heard it described that I like is rather than having a success and a failure, just have a list of successes. Okay. So in the uh, example again of being signed in, you could say that a guest is a null user, right? Mm -hmm. But rather than treating that everywhere as the absence of a user, you try and treat it as the presence of a guest. So in either case, you have a person that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody is using the site. It's not like a disconnected, disembodied site. Yep. Um, But you just treat the 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 user the same either case, and either you have a signed in user or you have a guest.
0: Okay. So I think we're I think we're using null object, and we haven't really done a good job of explaining what that is Mm -hmm. as a general concept.
1: Right. So a null object is a way of handling the case where you don't have something.
0: Okay. So another common
1: example I give is um, if you say that you have coupons in a site Mm -hmm. uh, and you want to know how much value is there for this user on their coupon. Mm -hmm. But a user might not have a coupon. Not everybody has one. Yep. So one way to deal with that is to say like, okay, user coupon, if you have a coupon, get its value. Otherwise it's zero. Right. And then repeat that everywhere. Or you could put it on the user and say, like, okay, what's my coupon? Return its value. Otherwise, return zero for my coupon value. Yep. But using a null object, what you can do is have a null coupon that has a value of zero. And then a user's coupon always returns something. Okay. So it's another way of kind of turning it into a success. Right. Instead of saying a user has a coupon or doesn't have a coupon, they always have one. But in the case that no, like... Know real coupon exists for them, then you return a null coupon, which is always worth nothing.
0: Right. And so you you can define on that null object the methods that you might call on that coupon to return sort of sensical values for not having coupons.
1: Right, exactly. And that makes sense for a lot of situations where you'd have to check for null.
0: Um, So how does this all relate to using try in your code?
1: Okay, yeah. So a lot of people in that situation with a coupon would use try. yeah. Um, which first of all has always just rubbed me the wrong way, which I know is not a great argument not to use something, no, but I, it, totally I never agree. feel good about it. I always feel like I cheated. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is that it is kind of cheating. Um, it is technically using polymorphism, right? Because you're passing in an argument and you're saying, um, Hey, whatever you are, I don't know if you're nil or if you're a coupon, right? but give me a value. Okay. And if it's nil, it produces zero and otherwise it produces it's its value, right? Mm -hmm. So you could say coupon, try, value, or zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, And technically, that's sort of taking advantage of polymorphism. But Mm. in some ways, I think it's sort of the the worst of both worlds, because you're acknowledging that you might not have a coupon, right? But you're also providing the default value. Mm. So you're sort of mixing concerns because you have to care about the default value in the consumer. Right. Um, but you also don't get away from the fact that you have to worry about whether or not you have a coupon to begin with.
0: Right. So you haven't really fixed anything. So I think it's
1: like, uh, you know, half a second fix. It works really well, but it adds maintenance costs. So.
0: Right. And it's really just a translation of like, if, or like coupon and then user dot coupon, right? Like you're sort of just band-aiding over the problem. Or is it better than that? Because it's sort of polymorphic. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's just prettier,
1: but I think it is the same thing.
0: Yeah. Okay. So a polymorphic solution, so so the null object, avoiding the try, is sort of a nicer way of coming at that. Right. So
1: anytime I find try, Mm -hmm. the first thing I look at, actually, is to see if I can avoid the situation where I don't have the thing I'm talking about. Okay. So, like, in this situation, there is the absence of a coupon problem, right? Because not Mm -hmm. every user has a coupon. Yep. But there are many situations where you can just get out of that entirely, like, don't ever pass null to this method. Sometimes there's no good reason to pass null to what method to whatever method is calling try or don't ever return null from whatever method we're calling try on. Okay. Sometimes it's convenient but not necessary, uh-huh. uh, and those costs add up. And try is one of the first symptoms, like or wanting to use try is one of the first symptoms that you you might have too many nulls. Interesting, but if you really have this, like semantically, it makes sense yep. to have the presence versus absence concept in the application then the next thing I reach for is a null object.
0: Okay. That makes sense. It's, you were talking about why you sort of at a gut level don't like try. And I definitely agree with that. And one thing I feel like I've noticed with try is once I put one in, I find myself needing more later on. Mm-hmm. Like you've kind of surrendered to this idea of, yeah, we're going to deal with things not existing. And now it sort of tends to cascade from there. Right.
1: So uh, yeah, I think what really rubs me the wrong way about it and what causes what you're talking about there. Is it's not actually solving the problem. It's it's addressing that the problem exists Mm -hmm. without cleanly abstracting it in the application.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So another thing I wanted to uh, bring up was something we've talked about in some of our dev discussions, which is god objects. Ah. Yes. Um, They're god-awful. They are god-awful. And yet they always seem to show up. It seems like one of those things where if you ask anyone you know, what is a good class, eventually they would tell you it's something that has one concern, or it's sort of, it's tightly focused on one idea. And yet, um, there's almost, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a Rails app where the user class, for example, is not this gigantic bloated thing.
1: Right. I like to say that in every Rails application, there are two god classes. Mm -hmm. There's user and whatever the focus of the application is. Right. It's always obvious. As soon as you look in the models directory... Without looking at any of the classes, you can say these are the two God classes. It's a user and, you know, story for trajectory or article for a blog system. Okay. Um, I guess we didn't really define God class there. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if there's a strict definition for it, but I I tend to think of it as any class that seems to know everything. Mm. Like anywhere you are in the application, you're dealing with this thing. And whatever question you have to ask, this thing probably knows the answer. Right. You know, whatever you're doing, like, are you allowed to edit? Well, it's either going to be the user or the article that knows. So,
0: right. Well,
1: we'll looking user first. Okay. Um, and I think that's a problem, first of all, because, you know, when you have to deal with it everywhere, it means that it's entangled everywhere, right. which means it's difficult to move things around. Mm-hmm. But uh, it also becomes just cumbersome to deal with the large class and to deal with the large test that comes with the class.
0: Did you see Rich Hickey's keynote at uh, RailsConf where he was talking about complexion? I did. I love that word. Complex? Yeah, you've got your user class complected up all in your app.
1: Yeah, I thought his uh, story about easy was also pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely. But I'm an
1: etymology nerd, so... Uh, oh, right, the, yeah. But, oh, right. um, yeah, so... The useful thing about identifying the fact that there are God classes is, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk a lot about this, the strategies you can use to remove additional concerns from classes. Mm -hmm. But a common question that people ask that isn't straightforward to answer is like, should I actually spend the time doing this? Mm. You know what I mean? You could boil every class down to one method if you really wanted to, and you could have the smallest objects possible and have, you know, the lovely kingdom of nouns right but is frequently like you might make things worse and if, if you're not making things worse like in the example of that that coupon problem if you know you're only ever going to run into it once it, it might not be worth it to solve it right to spend the time to extract the object right so you have to decide is it worth doing this refactor mm-hmm. and i think one of the things that helps a lot in answering that question is is this one of the two classes that wants to be god in this application mm-hmm. so for example I'm very aggressive about extracting things from user. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, people talk about, like, the third strike rule. For me, it's the first strike rule on user. If it seems like it shouldn't be on user, I don't put it there. And then in every application, there's always something else that acts like that article or story or project, whatever. And I'm also aggressive about refactoring those classes. Mm -hmm. Whereas a class that, you know, has been around for six months but hasn't been modified and only has, you know, six methods... Yeah. If it has, like, one and a half concerns, I don't really care.
0: Right. And one of the things that, that I've started doing that I think I picked up from you, which is I won't sit down and be like, you know what? Today I'm going to refactor a user. But as soon as I need to touching it for some other reason, like I'm changing it or I'm enhancing it, uh, I'm like, okay, let's take a look at this and realize that, okay, this, this thing could be refactored. It is a god object. Let's split something out and make the code I'm about to write easier to write. Mm -hmm. And I think that approach has actually worked really well. And for us as consultants in particular, it's nice to be able to say, yes, I spent two hours refactoring this thing, but it was because it made the next thing I did easier. And so it's actually much easier to sell to people of why we're spending that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's that's been really good. So one, one thing you mentioned was um, the Kingdom of Nouns, which is a reference to steve yagi 's blog post right, uh, which is worth reading if you like getting pissed off. I think <laughs> the the first couple of comments are like in infuri- actually a bunch of the comments are infuriated java java programmers mm-hmm. and I will say uh, as a sort of uh, budding object oriented lover, uh, I was semi infuriated as well and uh, so so the, the The thesis of the article seems to be, and tell me if you agree, um, functions can be sort of first-class citizens, and this helps you. This can be good for the world. You don't need to wrap up functionality in classes all the time. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Is that a fair summary?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good summary. Okay. That behavior itself can be a thing in your system that it doesn't need to be wrapped up behind a noun. Right. I don't think that's at odds with object oriented programming. I actually think Ruby is an awesome example of how you can do object oriented programming while not having the kingdom of nouns problem.
0: Okay. Is that through blocks?
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, So, you know, we don't even notice we're doing it in Ruby, but every time you take, you know, that ampersand block as an argument, Mm -hmm. you just took a function as a parameter. Right. You took a function and treated it as an object and passed it around. And I think Ruby makes that so painless and, you know, transparent that we don't even notice that we've solved the problem. Okay. And so, you know, it eliminates the need for a lot of, um, you know, strategy objects you would otherwise have in Java. Like, we still use the strategy pattern, and technically using a block like that could be called the strategy pattern. But in a lot of situations, instead of having a full-on class, you can get away with just passing a block. And we do that all the time in Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example is um, in active record. whenever you open a transaction, you take a block, right? Right. And so if we didn't have blocks, what you'd need to do in Java is make a class that has some kind of a go. You'd have to make a command object. Okay. And then you would pass that to the transaction runner.
0: Uh, okay. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Whereas in Ruby, it's completely... Seamless, right? Because we have these block objects. You don't that,
0: need to wrap it up in its own class, right?
1: And really, every block could be called a strategy.
0: Interesting, or a command.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're not um, usually exclusive. Sure.
0: Okay. Hmm. Okay. One other thing. So we we're talking about extracting um, things out of God classes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have? Do you have personal uh, flags in your head for when something has crossed the line as far as sharing responsibilities? something that you used to look at a class and say, okay, it's time to break this up.
1: Definitely. Um, so going back to the example of user, Mm -hmm. um, we very frequently start with an active record based class. You know, we use clearance in almost all of our applications. And so we have user, which represents the signed in user and has potentially some business logic with the user. And it has persistence just because it descends from active record. Right. Like we talked about, Mm -hmm. um, and so there, I'm very cautious about things like uh, validations, callbacks, lifecycle things. Mm. You know if there's something that I could move into some kind of observer,-hmm I'll do that if there's something I could use a decorator for, I'll do that. But basically, anytime I'm adding a method to user that is not very directly related to the persistence of a user, mm. then I'll start thinking of where else I might be able to put it.
0: Okay. Are we in a renaissance of object-oriented programming returning to rails? Or coming to Rails for the first time?
1: I definitely think that uh, more traditional object-oriented programming uh, has been coming back to our community for a while now. When I first started doing Rails and Ruby, sometimes you know, words like design pattern and you know, things like strategy, the things we've been talking about, mm-hmm. would actually get you some pretty dirty looks.
0: Right. Totally. And the sort of DHH railing against enterprise sounding things, or anything that sounded like it had roots in Java at one point, mm-hmm. seemed to right. get a lot of flack.
1: Uh, you know, like people very rarely explicitly use factories in mm-hmm. Ruby still, for example. Mm. Um But I, I do think that it's starting to swing the other way again. It I seems like I a... don't think we're going in a bad direction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like um one of the warnings I think that you're getting too enterprisey or whatever is when you start having those objects that have like four nouns in the name. Right. And I almost never see that in yeah. in Ruby. Interesting. But I think it's good that we're not we have a, a special guest from the elevator. <laughs> Hi, Shana. So sorry. I grab
0: a That's no problem. Go Come get on. a t-shirt. Right. <laughs> uh, Shana, we're gonna clean you up in post. Don't worry. Okay, thanks. Should have told her we were live. Yeah, exactly. This is streaming to four thousand people right now. Is it? No, <laughs> but it soon will be. So we haven't gone too far then it's been mostly a positive change.
1: Right. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think, um, one of the warning signs you can see is that, um, you start getting those four noun classes mm-hmm. and I, I very rarely see those in Ruby, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's good that people are no longer discounting all the experience we learned from Java. Right. I think a lot of people are so scalded by that experience that they, you know, threw out everything they had gained.
0: Absolutely i can also say personally that uh, when i was in school i was assigned to read that design patterns book and from by the gang of four and at the time i loathed it like i think i read a couple i read like a dozen pages and then checked it. it was like this is the worst thing i've ever had to read and then i started i actually read it for the first time about three months ago and basically couldn't put it down which is saying something for a pretty dry technical book um and so I, I, I realized that at the time, I was so not ready for that information. But now, after struggling with a lot of the things that design patterns can help with for so long, um, it actually was a great thing to read and pick up. I feel like I, I got a lot out of it now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it definitely took me a few times through that book before I... I got a lot out
0: of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, it's, I think it's good to see that within the community, we're seeing more of this uh, return to object-oriented roots in some senses. Like, I've been seeing talks at conferences. Sandy Metz has been giving a talk about, oh, design principles in Rails. You have Opti Grimm's book coming out. Uh, some stuff on by the Ruby Rogues people. Just, it seems to be quite a resurgence. Mm-hmm. which is, I think, a good sign.
1: Definitely. Yeah.
0: All right, so I think that's all we have for this installment. Uh, hopefully this is useful for you. You learned a little bit, and we're entertained. Uh, thanks, Joe, for being on and talking to me about this stuff. Anytime. Yeah. And, uh, again, if you have questions, feel free to get in touch, and we'll try to get them answered, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Take care.